As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Diana Mason. Dr. Mason has had an extraordinary impact on so many areas of life here in Texas, as well as nationally and internationally. Currently a professor emeritus from the Department of Chemistry at UNT, Dr. Mason does research in chemical education. She leads a statewide team of chemistry educators interested in improving the mathematics skills of general chemistry students enrolled in Texas institutions. Dr. Mason has made a positive impact right here at OLLI, serving the OLLI community in many, many ways as a faculty member, an advisory council president, and chair of special interest groups. She's also an active fellow member of Denton's Benjamin Lyon chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, where she does a terrific job as the editor of the chapter's monthly newsletter. In addition, she is a member of the Colonial Dames 17th Century who have partnered with the Texas Veterans Hall of Fame, TVHOF, where she sits on the board. The 2020 Dames Service Project with TVHOF is called Remember Them Forever. For this year's Remember Them Forever project, the Dames have adopted Oakwood Cemetery in Denton and are in the process of providing 285 bio-sketches of the buried veterans, and raising funds to support the purchase of flag-holding medallions for each veteran's gravesite, indicating the time frame of their service. The plan is to make Oakwood the showcase cemetery of the TVHOF statewide project. Welcome, Diana. Thank you very much, Susan, for the very kind introduction. Well, I tell you what, I'm not done yet because you are a very, very busy person. I've had the good fortune of knowing you personally for some time now through both your involvement with Ollie and the DAR. So I can say I have firsthand knowledge of how absolutely busy you are and how significantly you contribute to any organization you are involved in. I don't know if being an expert in chemistry somehow makes it possible for you to find more than 24 hours in a day, but that's the hypothesis I'm going with so that our listeners have a glimpse at how impressively smart you are. I wanted to start by giving a rundown of your educational background. You received your PhD in science education with an emphasis on chemistry from the University of Texas at Austin, an MS in zoology from Texas A&M University in Commerce, where you studied the embryo toxic effects of PCBs on zebrafish and a BA in zoology from UT at Austin. Not to mention your numerous teaching certificates from North Texas State University, now our very own University of North Texas, and that you are board certified as a cytotechnologist from the American Society of Clinical Pathologies. Dr. Mason's awards include the UNT Community Award in 2005 and also several other prestigious awards for service. National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution in 2015, Texas Society of the Daughters of American Revolution in 2015, 
E. Ann Naley Region Award for Volunteer Service to the American Chemistry Society in 2015, Regents Award, Benjamin Lyon, DAR, in 2019, Reg Friesen Lecturer, 2019, Texas Society Colonial Dames, 17th Century, second place, 2020, and Star of Destiny Chapters Community Service Award in 2020. You are an inspiration, that is for sure. Can you describe your work in increasing student success in the study of general chemistry in helping them to increase their effectiveness through their knowledge and use of mathematics? That is a very complex question, but let me start back in 2016 when I read a study out of the Naval Academy at Annapolis, and they had noticed that students today had different levels of ability when they did use a calculator and when they didn't use a calculator. And I thought, well, that's an interesting, simple study. I bet I could do that in Texas. And so I called up my chemical education friends in this state and formed what we are calling ourselves the Networking for Science Advancement Team. And right now I have, I think, 10 universities in my group. They range from UTEP, Texas Tech, Abilene Christian, University of North Texas, Texas A&M Commerce, UT Austin, Texas State University, Texas A&M University in San Antonio, Texas A&M University in College Station, Sam Houston Institute, and University of Houston at Clear Lake. And we got together and we did a study over the last four years and have tried to decipher why does chemistry have such a high DFW rate? Why do so many students, duly admitted to a university, but yet the DFW rate, those who either withdraw or make a D or an F in the course, exceeds 30% at almost every institution. And that's, it's national probably international, but I can attest to the fact that it's a national DFW rate of over 30%, and usually it goes up to 47 to 50%. And so why is this? Well, we did a very simple study. We got a very simple, easy, what we thought was easy mathematics arithmetic test, gave it to the student's without a calculator, and then gave it to them with a calculator. All right, not a surprise. With a calculator, they did better. Now go to the end of the semester, and we looked at the grades versus what they had done without a calculator and what they had done with the calculator. And it was eye-opening what students could do without their calculators was more highly correlated with their final grade in chemistry than what they could do with their calculator. We had no idea that your ability to do arithmetic, now this is literally arithmetic test. It's like multiply 87 times 93 on a piece of paper but don't use your calculator. And it was amazing and eye-opening to us that what they could do without the calculator was more indicative of what their grade was going to be. And we give this the first week of classes. Our statistical analysis indicate in both first semester chemistry and second semester chemistry that in 15 minutes, the first week of classes, we have an 80% chance of determining that a student is not going to be successful in general chemistry. Currently, we are in the process of introducing some what we call HIPs, high-impact practices, to see what we can do to improve their mental math skills, their arithmetic ability. 
and we've gotten several publications and even though I'm quote unquote retired, uh, I'm still very active in the chem ed community and we have gotten seven publications in the last three years on our research that we've done on what we call automaticity. What can a student do without a calculator seems to be more indicative of how they're going to be in their majors. And most of them are not chemistry majors. The majority of them are biology majors. That is so interesting that that's such a telling sign of how someone is going to do. And what I'm personally curious of, and if anyone else is listening that is in the STEM fields, I would love to know if this carries over into physics and the geosciences and in other STEM fields and engineering courses that automaticity seems to be something that we're lacking. Now think about why the Naval Academy was doing this, because if you're out on the high seas and all of a sudden the internet goes down or you lost your trusted calculator, you pretty much have got to have some sense of numeracy that you would be able to deal with a traumatic situation, but deal with it with sort of automaticity knowledge. It's got to just be there. It's very concerning to the people at the Naval Academy, which is why they published the program that they did. I would wonder too, Diana, if this ability to be able to do these calculations without a calculator might also speak somewhat to the ability of a person in planning and structuring their thoughts in a very logical, sequential way, just like someone has to do when they're working on a math problem. Absolutely. What else we have done to expand this study is we have now gone into an area of what we call quantitative literacy. And I mean, even to read the sports page in a newspaper today, you look at graphs and charts and have to interpret, especially if you're really into a sports phenomenon, you've got to be able to look at the stats and determine, well, is team A going to win or team B going to win? And it affects all of our lives. Think about just on the nightly news, how many times they talk about the stock market going up or down. Well, what does that actually mean? We live in a society now that's very data-driven. We certainly do. And what's sending alarms off in my brain right now is I'm guessing, and I don't know, but I imagine you might know, that the trend toward teaching mathematics in school these days is going toward using a calculator, isn't it? We in Texas supposedly introduced the calculator to our students in the seventh grade. So they have what we call knowledge decay. Well, knowledge decay usually takes about two weeks after you have learned something in two weeks. You know, academically, you're going to forget it in two weeks. Well, they've had six years to forget what the elementary grades taught them in their times tables and add, subtract, multiply, you know, the basic four functions. And Yes, a calculator makes it more robust. You can do a lot more with a calculator than you can with just paper and pencil. And it makes it faster. So there are all sorts of good things. But think about when you were in school. I'm going to assume you were not married to your calculator in grade seven. No. (laughs) Neither was I. We had to learn how to do these things on a piece of paper or in our head. And I was a senior in college before I got my first $100 calculator that literally all it did was add, subtract, multiply, and divide. I knew how to do these things without a calculator. However, that calculator sure made things a lot better and a lot faster. It was a godsend for a science major to have a calculator. Well, I think we've gone a little too far with that. 
You know, I even think back of the days when I was in high school and I worked at a cashier at a local five and 10, and we had to count back change. Whereas now cashiers, I think most cash registers tell you how much money to give back. Yes. Have you ever had something cost a dollar sixty-seven and you give them two dollars and seventeen cents, and they look at you like, "Why? Why? What are you doing? Why are you doing that?" I did. I did have someone say that just the other day. I think they thought I was giving them a very small tip. <laughs> <laughs> Now, obviously, you're still very involved with chemistry education and serving as an American Chemical Society fellow and as a regional director of the Associated Chemistry Teachers of Texas. I read that you reached a personal goal in 2015, presenting chemical demonstrations to over 20,000 participants at sites as far away as Qatar and in five different states. That's quite a number. In fact, in your beginnings with Ollie, you were doing chemistry demo shows for Grandparents University. Some of our listeners might remember that as part of the Emeritus College, the precursor to Ollie at UNT. In fact, we're going to post some links of those demos with the podcast description, but I have to ask you, Qatar, what were you doing there? Well, one of my friends from graduate school got a job in Qatar and invited me over. I went over to give a talk on student success in the sciences. However, that afternoon, my postdoc, Bob Shelton, and I did a demo show. And I had a, now I'm going to probably not tell you what his rank was, but a sheik, his son was in the audience and came up after the demo show and wanted to know if I would go to his school the next day and do the demo show. Oh, I so much wanted to do that, but we had traveled internationally and we had only brought enough chemicals to get us through the one show. The young man was so sweet and so nice, and he wanted us so much to come visit his school, but I had to turn him down. But demos are something that is international, and it cuts across all politics, if that's what you want to call it, that chemicals do what chemicals want to do. And it's fun if you know how to blow stuff up, and it's not so hard to do, but it looks spectacular. (laughs) So is that what your demonstrations consisted of primarily? What kind of things did you demonstrate usually? And by the way, that's high praise to have someone come and ask you to come to their school. That's really incredible. Oh, I I was so disappointed that I had to turn them down. The typical show was probably doing, I'll give the common names, Elephant's Toothpaste which is just a decomposition of hydrogen peroxide. But when you put a little soap with it, it makes a big mess. (laughs) (laughs) Kids love that. Adults love that, as long as they don't have to clean it up. Right. And then another of the favorite ones is fire in the jug. And all that is is the combustion of alcohol. But again, if you don't know the chemistry behind it, it looks a lot more impressive than it really is. And we also had what I call a baby thermite reaction, which if anyone wants to do this, you find some rusted ball bearings out in the field or at a car lot or something like that, and put aluminum foil around one of them and the rusted ball bearing and just smack them together between your left hand and your right hand, and it makes a huge loud noise just the smacking them together. And of course, we always ended the show with uh, balloons. And we would have one balloon that was our sad balloon. And our sad balloon was nothing but pure oxygen. But we always kind of worked that one into the scenario. Like the first one would be we would explode a hydrogen balloon. And you can think of the Hindenburg. 
And so loud bang, a lot of flame going up. And we also would have a helium balloon. Of course, now after you hear the hydrogen go off, you kind of think, oh, well, she's going to make them all really loud. Well, helium, which was discovered in Kansas, but the largest concentration of helium is in Amarillo, Texas, it won't explode. And then that's what we put in the Goodyear blimps. And you wouldn't, I mean, after the what happened to the Hindenburg, obviously a Goodyear blimp is a lot more safe. And you explode that one or attempt to explode that one. It just goes pop, little bitty, you know, just you can barely hear it even. And then we have our sad balloon. Well, the set, now they've heard one huge explosion. And the sad balloon is pure oxygen. And oxygen is more dense than hydrogen and helium. So it's a sinking balloon. And usually we have someone from the audience hold this really short string. And we're going, oh, well, make sure you don't get too close. And we kind of build it up and then you pop it. Well, it's pure oxygen. You have to have three things for a combustion to happen, one of which is oxygen. And then you have to have a fuel and you have to have something to ignite it. Well, if you're missing one of those three, you have nothing happening. And so the oxygen without some sort of fuel just pop and that's it. And of course, then the last one is when you mix the oxygen and hydrogen in the same balloon. And that's usually our finale with a great big bang. I can only imagine with all these demos, how many young minds you energized into being interested in the field of science. Wouldn't that be interesting to know? Oh, I would love to know the answer to that question because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it's a, it's a very valuable fun. It's good for kids and adults and everyone to see that kind of thing. Interestingly enough, I saw that you did research with Cynthia Powell on the effectiveness of podcasts delivered on mobile devices as a support for student learning during general chemistry laboratories in 2013. What did you find out in that study? Well, Cynthia was one of my graduate students, I always told my graduate students that the good thing about being in my research group was you get to choose your own project for your doctoral studies. The worst thing about being in my research group, you have to choose your own project. (laughs) But Cynthia came to me with an idea already in mind, which was just simply wonderful. She's now a full professor at Abilene Christian University in Abilene. Her university had decided to give all entering freshmen a cell phone. And the faculty was told that because the university was giving all the students a cell phone, that the faculty had to figure out ways to use the cell phone in their classes. I'm sure it's not still up, but there was a billboard on I-20 on the way to Abilene that highlighted students in her lab with their cell phones being used. And that was just the coolest thing to go, I know her. As far as the study goes, what she did with this particular study was it was a way to take away one TA having to answer the same question over and over and over to lab groups. As you know, a lab of 24 probably has at least 12 lab groups, and you will have the same question asked over and over and over by each group, like, oh, now how do you do a titration, and how do you do this, and you're like, oh, I just heard that, you know, but you know that they're a different group and they probably didn't hear what you said to the other group. But now all of the aspects of doing the technical part of the lab, like how to do a titration, how to look at a meniscus on getting a volume of something, all those little things that are just repeated over and over and over all semester. Well, now those were all pre-recorded so that students could 
see exactly how to open a barrette, how to turn on a Bunsen burner and light it properly, all the little things that those of us in the field just sort of take for granted that now they had at their immediate access, her results were very interesting. It sounds like you were ahead of your time. This sort of reminds me of a precursor to COVID with all of the Ollie video classes and the recordings that are going on now. I mean, how timely to have Zoom come into our lives. I wonder if without COVID, if Zoom would have become as popular. But I think it would have, but just probably not at the same rate that it has gone from literally from zero to it's batting a thousand. Well, I think it has some real positive benefits. I mean, of of all the bad news with the COVID and the quarantines, I think being able to reach out by video, both to talk to friends, but to learn is wonderful. I think it really creates a easy way for people to reach out and learn without even having to leave their house. It's definitely got to be better for the environment, right? Less cars on the road. <laughs> well, I mean, think about just the first few days of what we would call the shutdown for COVID and the pictures of Paris and before and after when they took the planes out of the air, how the atmosphere went from being very hazy and dirty and you couldn't even see the Eiffel Tower. And a week later, you could. I mean, that was, to me, that was very eye-opening. We have to have some very happy birds in the world. Yes, (laughs) After retiring in 2012, if you can really call it retiring, and I think I'm going to have to come up with a new word besides retiring, I'm going to work on that because I use it very loosely. You've continued to branch out into many other areas. In 2016, you were commissioned by Governor Abbott as an admiral in the Texas Navy in high recognition for your passion for the great state of Texas. And in one of your Ollie classes, you provided a quote from Theodore Roosevelt Jr. that said, it's no exaggeration to say that without the Texas Navy, there would probably have been no Lone Star Republic and possibly the state of Texas would be part of Mexico. Can you tell us about the Texas Navy? (laughs) Well, that would be a quote about the Texian Navy. Remember, we were part of Mexico, and so we were called Texians. There was a Texian Navy, our first Navy, which had four ships, and that existed before what you would consider our last battle in 1836. And Santa Ana obviously defeated the people at the Alamo, His plan was to march to get Sam Houston. Well, Sam Houston in the Great Scrape, they were burning everything. After they would use it up, they burned down everything. And so Santa Ana's troops were having to live off the land. Well, his Santa Ana's plan was that when he got to Galveston, which is basically the way they were marching, new troops would be delivered, new ammo would be delivered, and everybody would have something to eat because the Mexican Navy was going to make that assistance to the Santa Ana troops that were on land. Well, our four little ships, our schooners, blockaded the Mexican Navy and they never made it to Galveston. Quite a contribution. Yes, quite a contribution. And consequently, in 18 minutes, the Battle of San Jacinto was over because it wasn't that we fought that bravely or for obviously 18 minutes and it was over, but the Mexican troops had literally just marched from San Antonio. They were dead tired. They were hungry. They were They were fit to be tied, and it was not much of a skirmish. Now, the next Navy, the second Texian Navy, was while we were a republic, and that would be between 1836 and 1845. And we actually sold off our 
remaining ships. I think we had eight for the second Texian Navy, and we sold off the ones that hadn't been lost to the U.S. to sort of buy our way in because we tried to get in by treaty, but that failed, and so we were annexed, and to get annexed, we sold off our land in, oh, Wyoming, Colorado, Nebraska, New Mexico, Oklahoma. Then the U.S. and their infinite wisdom said, well, y'all just keep that priceless land out in West Texas. And so we did. And that priceless public land in the early 1900s struck oil. And that was a good thing for us. I should say. So I am intermixing the Texian Navy with the Texas Navy Association, right? Right, because this is the third Texas Navy, and we actually call ourselves now the Texas Navy. But my interest stemmed from the fact that I went to the website and I saw this little clip about the Texian Navy that they were in process of developing for seventh graders because it's in the seventh, well, now it's in the fourth and the seventh grade. But this film clip was being developed for the seventh graders. And it was fascinating what I learned about the Texian Navy. And I really had not known all of this. And I got in touch with the commander of the Texas Navy and asked him some questions. And he wanted to know what my interest in Texas was. And it goes back, part of it is something that is genetic, sort of genetic. My great, great, great grandfather's wife was William Barrett Travis' first cousin. And William Barrett Travis was the commander-in-chief of the Alamo, as probably most of you know. And it's always just been part of family lore that, I mean, we're, you can't say that we're kin to each other, but there is a link between us. And so I was talking to Commander, I think it was Commander Hatch at that time, and then also informed him that my grandfather was a, had been Attorney General of Texas. And that sort of did it. And he said, would you like to join the Navy? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, how do I do that? And he said, well, send me a resume of what you've done. Well, <laughs> I had given all these talks on Texas through Ollie, mostly, And so I sent him all these talks that I had done on Texas. I guess he liked what he saw, and he sent my letter of recommendation into Governor Abbott. And a couple of months later, I was a commissioned admiral in the Texas Navy. That's a great story. And you're also very involved with Denton's Benjamin Lyon chapter, the DAR, an organization that we both have the good fortune to be members of. And I mentioned in the introduction about your work as newsletter editor. Can you tell us a bit about the contributions of the Benjamin Lyon chapter to the community and perhaps more about your involvement with the DAR? Well, being newsletter editor is great (laughs) because you get firsthand knowledge of all this stuff that sometimes nobody else knows but you and uh, the regent. And so you stay really on top of things. But how I got that, I think you can probably relate to this, that I had been in Benjamin Lyon for all of one month. And Linda Scott, the regent at that time, said, oh, hi, welcome to the Benjamin Lyon chapter. Would you like to be newsletter editor? And I went, uh, well, I, I can do that. Do you have a sample of what one of your newsletter? I mean, I've only been in for a month. So do you have a sample of what one of your newsletters looks like? And she said, uh, we don't have one. You'll be the first. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Uh, Sure. Uh, And our first newsletter was two pages long. And now I think you know that we probably pretty much have 20 or 30 pages a month. And it's fascinating how dedicated and how involved the members of our chapter are in everything that goes on in Denton. It's, 
it's not just what we do for the chapter. It's all the other stuff that we do. We're into, well, we have a, a monthly article from a registered pharmacist. She has her PharmD degree, and she, I think uh, the next month it's going to be on probiotics. And she just finished doing a couple on the uh, potential of a COVID vaccine. So we're at the cutting edge of a lot of things that are going on, not only in Denton, but all over the world. And of course, we have our regular columns. This month, Georgiana Burledge did her talk on her father, who had been a POW in World War II, courtesy of the Japanese. And I unfortunately missed that uh, lecture, but I've heard that she's going to be giving one for Ollie pretty soon. Yes, and it's an incredible presentation, I must say. It's very moving. You already have prior knowledge, huh? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am definitely going to get to listen to that one. I have to agree with you. I continue to be impressed by the involvement and the quality of that involvement of the members of the chapter, both in the community and nationally. It's quite a group of individuals. They are remarkable women. That's just the bottom line. Remarkable. Yeah, I agree. Now, the DAR fits in nicely with your obviously obvious love for history, particularly Texas history and Texas culture. We are so fortunate to have you as an Ollie faculty member to share this passion with us. I understand you've given over 60 presentations about the great state of Texas and how Texas has changed the world in your Ollie presentations. And your most recent class is entitled Changing the World One Element at a Time. Uh, That was my attempt to blend my love of Texas history with my chemistry knowledge. I got some of this knowledge when I first retired going, oh, well, you know, I've always wanted to write a book on Texas. And what do I do for a living? I'm a chemistry teacher. Well, let's see if we can just write some chemistry problems that would be appropriate for high school. But as opposed to just saying convert A to B, let's see if we can put this in the context of a history story. And I was amazed. I had no idea of the things that had happened in this state that have really made a difference in the world. And the one that comes to mind just immediately is natural gas does not have an odor to it. We have to put the mercaptans in the gas to notice that we have a gas leak because we can smell it because of the mercaptans. Well, that particular addition happened because a school in New London, which is a little bitty town out in East Texas, the school with children in it blew up. Oh, my goodness. Hundreds were killed. Oh. And this was at a time that we had newsreels, but there wasn't TV coverage because this was in the 30s. But it was such an international news story that even Hitler sent a letter of condolence to New London. And they have that particular letter framed in their museum. Now, this was before the Hitler of World War II, because it was prior to that, when he was actually a fairly well-respected international personality. In three days, the legislation of Texas met, and they made decisions. The first decision was we would put a malodorant into the gas so that we could tell that we had a gas leak when we did. And the second thing was that to be able to call yourself an engineer, you are going to have to be professionally certified because they figured out that it was poor pipe fitting that where the leak had occurred. Now, of course, the school was trying to cipher gas off of the city supply without paying for it. Now, that's a whole different ballgame. And then the third good thing, if you call it a good thing, was that 
they decided that no new construction of a school could be built with a sub-basement because that's where the natural gas had collected and was able to cause such a huge explosion. So some good things did come about that. And then another thing that is all due to Texas is fluoridated toothpaste. A dentist went to Hereford, Texas, out in the Panhandle, and noticed that the community was pretty much cavity-free. And he got to publicize in this and talk. Now, as for a dentist, not having cavities in little kids' teeth, it's not good for business per se. But he started talking about it, and the head chief dental officer came to Hereford, and after a couple of years of research, figured out that their water was naturally fluoridated with one part per million, which became our standard. And even today, city water and uh, the toothpaste and all that have fluoride in them. And that happened because of something that occurred in Texas. Now, my third story, which is probably, uh, I think, just phenomenal, was Dow Chemical came down to Freeport, Texas, because they needed, they knew how to do this, but they needed a large source of seawater. And seawater is about 3% magnesium. And magnesium is a light metal that you can use to alloy it with other metals for crankshafts and stuff like that to make planes lighter. And also for incinerary weapons, it's a good igniter. And we were out of magnesium on land. And this is World War II and we needed more magnesium. So Dow Chemical came down to Freeport, Texas, and figured out how to mine a metal out of the ocean, which is the first time that had ever been done. And we recovered enough magnesium that supposedly it changed the course of the war. You were also the former special interest group chair for the Ollie's Day Tripper groups. Day trips to interesting places offered as part of Ollie at UNT's official curriculum. Now, in response to the COVID-19 situation, you've adapted that, and you are chair of the virtual special interest group on Texas, sharing virtual day trips, highlighting the symbolism of Texas, historical markers, Texas state of mind, and Texas veterans. Can you tell us about that? Day tripping per se ceased when COVID hit. And we had a couple of really cool ones coming up. We were going to go to the new ballpark for the Texas Rangers And that one got canceled. And we were also, I think in August, we had uh, a ghost tour of Denton planned. So I was looking forward to that one. Ooh, that sounds good. It was. I have heard this particular lady do it before. And she was making me believe in ghosts. And so I I thought this would be a really good day trip or night trip, I guess, in this case. But that kind of got put on hold. And so Stephanie decided that we should do it virtually because she said that somebody had suggested more information on Texas history. And she thought of me, and which is great because I love talking about Texas. It's fun. I just literally sat down and said, okay, now what can I do? (laughs) What can I do for an hour? And I just came up with some subtitles to go along with the Texas history. One of them was inspired by Jordan, who everybody knows. It was the Texas State of Mind, which has to do with the, in some realms, has to do with the music of Texas. And so I'm looking forward to plugging the Texas music scene. Jordan introduced me to some new Texas music that uh, I, but it's, you know, it's all Texas music. We in this state do everything from blues to rock and roll to country to western to western swing and we even have some music that I it's maybe it's too young for me but it's all Texas music and it all probably can be traced back to when we first had a Texas which is just great I mean even supposedly Davy Crockett brought his fiddle to the Alamo I wish I knew where that was. It was probably destroyed, but 
Wouldn't that be nice to have his fiddle? It sure would be. It just so happened that Wednesday was the day for the SIG group to meet. And Wednesday, November 11th, just happens to be Veterans Day. And so I have invited Gary Steele to be our guest speaker that day to talk about his projects with the Texas veterans. That's terrific. I can only imagine the many wonderful little tidbits of knowledge you must have in your head regarding Texas culture and history and so much more. I know you mentioned you have the genealogical connection with the Alamo. Is that where this interest started or did it start somewhere else in your life? Did it start late in life or early in life? Well, early in life in the fact that I always knew that there was a relationship between William Barrett Travis and the family. But it was my seventh grade Texas history teacher, Mrs. Umlin, that really sparked the interest. Now, by today's standard, she probably would have been the worst teacher ever because every Monday morning we came into her classroom and all the blackboards, literally all of them in the room, were filled with writing her lecture. And our task was to copy what was on the board into our notebook. And we were not to talk. We were simply to copy the lecture notes into our notebook. And those notebooks were collected every Friday. But also in that notebook were the quizzes and the spelling test And we also had to draw pictures of whatever we had talked about that week. I mean, if we had talked about rivers in Texas, we had to draw a picture that had to do with the rivers in Texas. We talked about the Alamo. We had to draw a picture of the Alamo. And for some reason, I guess that boring as it is, that may be one of the best ways I learn. Well, she was obviously on to something, right? I think so, because not only did I learn a lot, but I retained a lot. And I think that really, it's not what you learn for the moment that makes a difference. It is what you can retain. And share. Lucky for us, because you have retained it and you share it, and we appreciate that. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention your service to Ollie on the advisory council, which you actually just concluded. How long have you been involved in Ollie? And what would you say to listeners who've not yet experienced what Ollie has to offer? It all started with me with Grandparents University because Marilyn Wagner got me hooked into Grandparents University and to doing things for Emeritus College and Okay, I'm going to, some people probably remember this, but maybe the new ones do not. But one of my very first lectures to uh, the Emeritus College was on Texas vodka. Well, sometimes it's better not to say anything about what you're doing at the union at UNT. But uh, (laughs) I, I was just doing solution chemistry and are not, uh, is not vodka a solution? Yes, it was firsthand knowledge, I gather, right? <laughs> it's a mixture of alcohol and water. <laughs> and had, at that time, six Texas vodkas, and we did a vodka tasting test. So I think uh, statutes of limitation probably have run out, uh, I hope. Hands-on <laughs> learning, I think that would be called. <laughs> hey, you might have a lot of people signing up for your class after this podcast, Diana that uh, people want to bring that one back. (laughs) (laughs) You have an impressive commitment to science, education, and your community. What's motivated you to commit so much of your time? Well, being retired helps because whatever the definition of retirement is, well, at UT Austin, I had over 400 in a class. And at UNT, I've had classes of over 300. And that takes up time to, because I never gave a multiple choice test. That is something for 33 years, I never gave a multiple choice test. They were always convert this so many grams to moles and you had to do it on a piece of paper and you could use a calculator by the way, 
But I never wanted to know how well they could guess. I wanted to know what they could show me they could do. And I pride myself still today that I didn't conform. And to me, it was a good thing. Now, whether or not my students thought it was a good thing, is a, it's a whole nother ball game. But it does take a lot of time and not having to grade not only four or five exams a semester, but also the weekly assignments every semester for that many students. It simply takes time to do all the grading. And being retired freed up a lot of that particular time. But yet I haven't totally gotten away from teaching because Ollie and doing the things I do for DAR and DRT and also the Texas Veterans and Colonial Dames. It's still, maybe I'm teaching a different audience, but I still get to teach, which satisfies the teacher part of me. Well, I've been the recipient of many, many of your impressive efforts. So thank you for that. And Thank you for joining us today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate it. And I know you're a busy, busy person. So thank you very much. Well, this has been a pleasure to get to talk to you for more than our five-minute chats at our various organizations. So I appreciate you taking your time and doing such a fabulous job with all the podcasts. I hope that everyone who is interested in Ollie and maybe who are just thinking about joining Ollie, listen to some of Susan's podcasts. They are simply marvelous. Thank you, Diana. I appreciate that very much. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Dr. Diana Mason. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.